Welcome, everyone. I am Bob Wurzelbacher, the director of the Respect Life Office for the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. And this is our video podcast series that we call Being Pro-Life. Each month, we'll discuss a different topic in the Respect Life arena. We'll hear a personal story from someone deeply affected by that issue. And finally, we'll share ways that you can get involved. This month's topic is prison ministry. This week, we'll be talking about humanity on death row. Let's talk now with this week's guest. Will you please introduce yourself? I'm Tessie Castillo, and I'm a criminal justice writer and the co-author of Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. All right, so Tessie, what's your experience with prisoners on death row, and why do you know, what do you know about this topic? In 2014, I was asked to come into Central Prison, which is where all of the death row prisoners in North Carolina are housed, to teach a writing class to men on death row. And I taught that class for several months, and I really got to know the guys, got to learn about their backgrounds and how they got there and who they are. And after a few months, I decided to write a letter to the local newspaper talking about these men and and the human side of them, which is something that you often don't hear about in the news. And after that letter was published, I was dismissed from the prison and not allowed back in. I was not allowed to teach anymore. So after that, I got together with some of my former students and we wrote a book so that they could tell their stories. We'll get to that book later in this podcast, and we'll also be talking with Lyle May, one of your co-authors who's currently sitting on death row. We'll hear from him next week. But why don't we start with uh, the presumption most people have probably about capital punishment, right? Which is that the people on death row are those, it's reserved for people who have committed some pretty grisly murders or some pretty awful crimes. But you've learned that this is not necessarily the case. So can you tell us a little bit about how that process works here in the United States? Sure. So I also thought that people who got the death penalty were the ones who had torture or children or serial killing involved in their crimes. But one thing that I discovered when I was researching for this book is that that's not necessarily true. So last year in the U.S. there were 16,000 murders, but there were only 34 people in the whole country who were sentenced to death. So I used to think that if it's such a small percentage, it would be obviously the worst. I mean, they must have done something horrible. Right. <laughs> and while it's true that a lot of those 34 who were, uh, who were sentenced have been convicted of, of really particularly terrible murders, it's also true that many of them were not. And in fact, many people convicted of the death penalty were not actually convicted of killing anyone at all. And I have a couple of examples In the class that I taught at Central Prison, I had two men who were not convicted of killing anyone at all. They were simply present during a crime when someone else committed a murder. And in both cases, the person who committed the murder did not get the death penalty, while the accomplice did. So there's a lot of confusion within the criminal justice system. You have... So you're not even talking about a case where the person is accused of the murder, but you're saying that they were just a bystander, but you, but they actually are convicted on death row mm-hmm. for the crime of being present when somebody else did a murder. Yes. Uh, that's called the felony murder rule in the United States. And the felony murder rule states that if a, if a murder is committed during the course of a felony, which in most cases is a robbery, then everyone involved in that robbery, no matter if they were present in the store, no matter if they were the getaway driver, no matter if they intended for a murder to occur or not, they're all equally culpable. 
So one of the people in my class, for example, he was involved in a gas station robbery. There were four men present in that robbery. Two of them went into the gas station. One of them had a loaded gun. The two others, including the student in my class, were outside, and he was the getaway driver. They did not intend to kill anyone. They just wanted money. But something happened inside the gas station, and the person with the gun killed the gas station attendant. And the outcome of that was that my student, who was the getaway driver, was given the death penalty. And the other three men, including the one with the gun, who had actually committed the murder, did not. So there's just enormous discrepancies in who gets the death penalty and who doesn't under the system. Why, why would that even happen? That in the same case, the getaway driver is the only one convicted of death. How does that even happen? It depends a lot on the lawyer that you have. The, all four men had different lawyers, and the lawyers gave different defenses. In the case of the actual shooter, the defense was mental health. Uh, he had some mental health issues, and so he was able to escape the death penalty while my uh, student was not. So tell us a little bit more about what you've learned about the system, why it is that the death penalty is not fairly applied in this country. The problems that exist within the capital punishment system are really rampant throughout the entire criminal justice system. And pretty people are pretty familiar with it. Um, obviously, if you're a low-income person and you can't afford a private lawyer, you're assigned a defense attorney. And the defense attorneys are often not very well paid. They're often overworked and understaffed. And so they can't handle all of these cases. And this happens with capital trials as well. There are some capital trial lawyers who are tasked with defending someone's life, literally, who are paid very little, maybe just a couple thousand dollars, which is ridiculous for a trial that takes um, years sometimes to go through. They're paid very little. They are not given adequate resources. If you think about how the political system works, politicians decide whether a prosecutor's office gets X amount of money to convict people or whether a defense, court-appointed defense office gets X money to convict people. And of course, they're more interested in putting people who've supposedly committing crimes away rather than releasing them. So the balances tend to be extremely disproportionate, where you see prosecutors' offices get vastly more resources and defense offices get very few. There's just not a lot of political willpower to put money into defending someone. Other major factors in the death penalty in particular is geography. We only have in the United States the vast majority of capital convictions come out of only 2% of counties in the whole country. And most of those are in Texas. So you've got a situation like here, actually, where I live, there's a county right next to ours where they never pursue the death penalty, no matter how horrific the crime is, even though it's legal in North Carolina to have the death penalty. But they just choose not to. It's not politically expedient. Then the county right next to them always pursues the death penalty in every first degree murder case, no matter what it was. So you can have two identical crimes and which county they occur in is going to determine whether or not that goes to capital trial. So you talked a little about, about funds. That makes sense to me. So this, the funds that are available and more money tends to go to the prosecutor's office than to the defense attorney's office. So that includes not only salary. So a prosecuting attorney working for the state 
is likely to be paid a lot more than the state appointed defense attorney. They pay a lot more. They have more staff to work for them. And it also extends to things like money to be able to hire investigators, because we often operate under this assumption that nobody really thinks about how do you get money to hire investigators to look into a case? How do you get money to hire expert witnesses to give testimony? So you see on CSI and Law and Order, there's detectives going out and they're interviewing people and they're looking for evidence and they're at the crime scene and they're hiring experts and all this. All of those things take money. And prosecutors' offices are generally given a lot more money and staff and resources and connections to be able to gather that evidence than defense attorneys are. In fact, in some cases, defense attorneys, even for capital defendants, are not given any resources to conduct investigations. And in fact, the problem is so bad that there is a Supreme Court ruling. It's called Brady versus Maryland. And this Supreme Court ruling recognizes that since prosecutors' offices have more resources to investigate crimes, they often come across evidence that would point to a person's innocence as well as to their guilt. And what we were seeing is that a lot of those prosecutors' offices were choosing, obviously, to hide (laughs) the evidence that they found that pointed to a person's uh, innocence. And so the Supreme Court ruling mandated that they have to turn over the evidence to the defense attorney once they find it. Now, how that's enforced is a different story, but there is a rule. So you'll often find a situation where the prosecutor is the one finding all of the evidence, and then they may be turning it over to the defense attorney, as opposed to the defense attorney being able to hire someone and find the evidence themselves. In fact, in the majority of exoneration cases, when someone was found to be innocent, prosecutor misconduct was the reason that the person had been wrongly convicted. And suppressing evidence that could have pointed to innocence was one of the main examples of prosecutor misconduct. Wow. One thing that's very unique about capital cases is that after a person is convicted and given the death sentence and sent to death row, they're given a lawyer who can appeal the sentence. And the appeals generally take decades and decades and decades. Of all of the men who oh, I co-wrote Crimson Letters with, they've been there 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, and their sentences are still being appealed. Uh, and these appeals cost millions of dollars per case, which is why you often hear the argument that it's actually more expensive to put a person on death row than to give them a, a prison sentence. It's because of those really lengthy appeals. Now, as exoneration cases which are when a person is found innocent and released from death row, on average take 24 years to find out a person is innocent. And so when that person spends 24 years on death row and then they're found innocent and they're released, they're not entitled to any compensation for the years that they spent losing their lives. They just released, like, sorry guys, we messed up. In fact, one of the most interesting and I would say shocking facts that I found out about the death penalty in in my research is that across the United States, 65% of death penalty convictions are overturned. 
meaning that when the appeals process is happening and the prisoners are trying to argue that they had an incompetent defense attorney or there was prosecutor misconduct in their case or whatever the case may be, in 65% of cases, they actually win those appeals and they're taken off of death row, which means that 65% of the original capital convictions in the United States are later determined to be wrong. And that's an error rate that's just absolutely staggering to me. I don't think we would accept that high of an error rate for anything in, in any other industry. Right. Of course, now this is not 65% innocent of the crime, but this is 65% overturn as in uh, at least it was deemed it shouldn't have been considered worthy of death, I guess, under the system is more yes. what we're, mostly what we're talking about, I suppose, here. Yes. But yes. My goodness, 65%. That's uh, that's astounding. Now, the knee-jerk reaction to it takes so many years for the appeals process would be to say, well, once you've had your case and you've been convicted, there shouldn't you shouldn't be allowed to appeal for 25 years. But why is it that it takes this long? The appeal process takes so long in case that there is a mistake. It's because the death penalty is the most severe sentence that we can uh, impose as a society. And so we want to make sure that it's not done in error. In the United States, we've had for every 10 people who have been executed in the United States, we've had one person exonerated. So the exoneration rate is high enough that there's a serious risk if we did away with the appeal process in executing a lot of, of innocent people especially since we're dealing with the criminal justice system where racial bias plays a really heavy role in how people are sentenced, where uh, poverty and lack of ability to hire a good lawyer plays a really heavy role, geography where the crime was committed plays a really heavy role, all these factors that shouldn't matter, but they do, and they're in the criminal justice system. And so if we just convicted people and executed them quickly, to save money, we would be executing a lot of people who shouldn't be on death row in the first place. And that's why we have the appeals process. All right, Tess. So, so those are some pretty staggering statistics. One in 10. Uh, I've heard other statistics, but I certainly heard in the range of five to 10%. I've heard, I've heard those numbers anyway, closer to five, maybe in some cases of people are actually tr- simply innocent and mm-hmm. sitting on death row. And then the 65% rate of people. And that's, and even that probably is conservative. That That's a fact that 60, right? That 65% of capital cases are overturned and it's determined that they shouldn't have been capital cases in the first place. And that, that doesn't mean that 35% of them were necessarily correct because it could be that that other 35%, they didn't get very good defense in their appeals, right? I mean, it could, you know, is there is there a figure that estimates that last 35% piece as well or not? We just know that 65% are overturned and that's bad enough. 65% are overturned. 10% die of suicide or natural causes in prison. Right. And then the other 25% are executed. So that's what we know. Of, of those 25%, how many of them may have been innocent? Generally, the estimates are 2 to 4% of people are actually found innocent. Those are low estimates, of course. There's a, an enormous amount of incentive on the part of a prosecutor's office and the judicial system to not allow people to be found innocent after they were convicted because, of course, it, it makes them look terrible. 
if they put away an innocent person for 30 years and they'll pull out a lot of stops to make sure that that, um, that, that doesn't happen. Right. So what kind of immunity does a prosecutor have? All right. If they convict someone to death and then that's overturned, does anything happen to the prosecutor and even in the most egregious cases or are they immune? So prosecutors have something called absolute immunity, uh, which means that they cannot be sued basically for things that happen in the course of their job description. So it is extremely difficult to penalize a prosecutor, even for wrongful convictions. There was a study that was done of all of the cases of wrongful conviction back, I think, from 2006 to 2013. uh, And they found more than 600 cases of serious prosecutor misconduct where they withheld evidence or lied. And of those 600, only one prosecutor was ever penalized. What was that penalty? Disbarment. All right. Well, let's, so you, let's talk a little bit about your book. So you wrote a book, you co-authored with four, not only inmates, but people who are on death row. What, what was your purpose in writing, your primary purpose in writing this book? I wanted to allow the public to see who's actually on death row. I have some level of sympathy actually with people who support the death penalty. I used to support the death penalty myself. I understand the logic behind it, but it concerns me that as a society, we have a punishment that's so severe and we don't realize who we're applying it to. We have this very one-sided image of people on death row as monsters, as incapable of redemption, and then they get locked away and they're there for 30 years usually before they're actually executed, if they're executed. And we don't know anything about them or who they are or how they may have changed while they're in prison in those 30 years. So it was important to me that the public hear the actual stories and voices of the men inside. And if at the end of that, we still decide that the death penalty is a fair punishment, then so be it. I I feel like we would have done it from a, a better position of integrity. But right now it's it's so secretive and we live with these caricatures that aren't real. And so I wanted to give the men an opportunity to tell their stories and bring them to life. So let me share the screen here for to make it really easy for people can see. Of course, I'm sure this is not the only place, but a lot of people probably go to Amazon.com to get their <laughs> to get a book. And sure enough, it's called Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. It's been available since March 12th of 2020. It's available in Kindle in the paperback form right there by Tessie Castillo and four other co-authors. The four co-authors are, are all people who have been sentenced to death and are on death row right now. If you're just listening on the podcast, we have that link on our website, at, as always, at www.catholiccincinnati.org slash b-pro-life if you're interested in getting that book. So Tess, what, is, what has been the reaction of, of this book for now at the time of recording this book has only been out for a couple of weeks uh, but what has happened since you've released this book inside the prison yes so the the prison is not pleased <laughs> <laughs> um, after the book came out my co-authors received copies of course in the mail and the prison broke into their cells and confiscated the copies and then banned the book from the whole North Carolina prison system. So my co-authors are not allowed 
to own copies of their own book and neither is anyone else inside the prison. I think that, that our attempts to, to give voice to people inside prison is, is definitely being met with resistance by the system itself. Is there some answers as to why, or you just know that that was done and we don't have any explanation really? Yes, we do know why. Some of the chapters, one of the chapters describes a suicide attempt actually by one of the guys. Um, and that was the chapter that the prison took issue with. He, in the book, uh, describes that he attempted to fake a suicide so that he could escape solitary confinement because he was losing his mind inside of the cell. And the prison banned the book because they, they basically think he's spreading ideas to other people that they can also fake suicides and get out of prison. Right. Doing, doing the same thing to get out of solitary confinement. Right. All right, Tessie, so any other, anything else you want to share about this book or about the death penalty? To be honest, I was really nervous when I was writing this book and, and releasing this book. It, it was a long process. It took four years of snail mail contact since they obviously don't have email or anything like that. So they would send me essays and I would make some suggestions and send them back and they would correct them and send them back to me. And <laughs> it happened over many years. And it was a difficult process. We didn't always get along. We didn't always agree on what should go in the book and what shouldn't. It was not a kumbaya process, but <laughs> we did it. And we're excited about it to have it now. I was very nervous about being basically the face of a book, which is about a topic that's extremely controversial and personal for a lot of people, especially victims, families, um, people who've been affected by murder or perhaps lost a loved one. There were a lot of times when I doubted if I should be doing this or, or where I just felt scared. But I think that it's important that we hear about this issue from a holistic perspective um, and that we don't always look at just one side and then shut the men inside the prison and not allow their voices to be heard. And so I felt that it was important enough to do that, that I decided to go through with it, even though sometimes I had misgivings. And I'm really glad that, that I have, because uh, I've already had a lot of people reach out and, and say how moved they were by the book and, and by the men and by their voices and their stories. And that gives me a lot of strength. So I've read that book myself, Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row by Tessie Castillo, C-A-S-T-I-L-L-O. I highly recommend that book. I think it's a very good read. Well, thanks for talking with us today about the death penalty, about people on death row, the humanity, right, of people on death row. Hopefully we've learned a little bit and can give more humanity to those who are sentenced to death in this country and that things may not always be as we presume. So thanks for spending time with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. And I want to thank all of our viewers and listeners for tuning in on this episode of our Being Pro-Life series. Head to the website and view all the links talked about in this episode at www.catholiccincinnati.org slash being-pro-life. Thank you again for joining us today, and I look forward to being with you next time.